Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to MH TV. As you can see, we're having an old school start again this week. Um, it's lovely to have you with us. We're going to be talking about the psychological mechanisms of bipolar. Um, and we've got absolutely tons of ground to cover. So before I introduce you to our guest, who you may recognise from a previous episode, let me um, hand you over to Dave and he can show you how you can join in tonight because obviously we'd love to have your questions. Dave? Hi everyone. Yeah, so if you'd like to get involved in tonight's episode, you've got the same two ways as normal. Uh, the first one is on Facebook Live. If you head to the Facebook Live chat, uh, any messages, questions, comments, we'll obviously try and feed in as many as we can tonight. The other option you've got is over on Twitter, and all you have to do is include the hashtag MHTV. We'll be keeping an eye out for that, and we'll try and bring in as much Twitter comments as well. But without further ado, straight back to you, Nikki. Fantastic. All right, so over to our guest, Tom. Thomas, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, yes. Uh, so thanks for having me back again. Uh, I'm going to talk about a slightly different but overlapping um, interest of mine, which is about bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. So I've, yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm an associate professor at the University of Southampton, and I lead kind of teaching there for our diploma in CBT for bipolar disorder. And I have bipolar disorder myself. So there's a personal reason that I'm interested in that. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because it's not not that often you get somebody who's got multiple different perspectives on the same thing in terms of research, experiencing, living, just understanding from lots of different um, aspects. So please do feel free to um, ask anything that you want to um, and we will we'll take the questions as we go through. But I think it'd be a really good idea if right at the start we're just really clear. So when we're talking about bipolar, what, what are we talking about? Yeah, so we're talking about, um, you know, quite a potentially serious severe mental health problem probably affects in the UK about 2% of people at least but we do know that a big chunk of people you know I mean, by some estimates potentially half of people with bipolar disorder in the UK don't have that diagnosis mm -hmm. you know and some um, work I've been doing with bipolar UK report we had we found even now it's still you know an average of nine and a half years from your first episode to getting that diagnosis mm -hmm. and it was actually worse for people who were diagnosed relatively recently compared to people who were diagnosed sort of 20 years ago. So we're talking about episodes of depression, you know, which people will probably know about. So feeling very hopeless, low energy, lots of guilt, maybe feeling suicidal. And then episodes of, so there's hypomania and mania. So hypomania is kind of the less severe, but it can still <laughs> cause quite significant problems. Yeah, so we're doing this. Um, so, you know, we're talking about a period and this goes on for quite a while. We're talking about, you know, days, weeks, where your mood is very elevated, you might have uh, lots of energy, your mind's going a million miles per hour, talking really fast, big ideas, lots of confidence, not sleeping for days, but not feeling tired. Mm. And then we can go to the mania where people might, you know, need to be hospitalized, they might become kind of quite psychotic, they might become paranoid, and lots of really destructive things that can happen when people are manics, you know. They're not necessarily looking they can after do. themselves, not necessarily being great with safety. Yeah, it can be um, sort of neglect if you're depressed, but, you know, that we, again, with Bipolar UK, we found, for example, in women, uh, uh, I think it was most people reported kind of hypersexuality that can come when people are manic and, you know, lots of uh, consequences of, you know, hypersexuality that, that might come with that. Mm impulsive spending this is where the link is with what I told you about before is reported by you know potentially most people with bipolar disorder and you know I certainly people can take out like you know 20 grand and just spend it in like a couple of days on 
what they think is a good idea and yeah so it can cause really you know the big relationship problems and um, unfortunately even kind of mm. poor physical health and even reduced life expectancy you know so um yeah th there's a lot of consequences to it mm. yeah and i think that's important to say we're talking about kind of discrete episodes here you know some people they might have some lingering kind of anxiety and low mood in between episodes but you know people can go for a long time being very stable mm. um we're talking about episodes that can go on depression is at least two weeks and then the of hypermania is kind of at least like a week so we're not talking about the day-to-day -day ups and downs we're talking about discrete episodes and yeah yes people can recover really well in between episodes yeah. um but it causes huge problems and actually come to i think that's one of the why people with bipolar disorder can get a raw deal is because <laughs> they're stable for so long yeah. they don't really get offered a lot mm. yeah and just to clarify something you were saying, um, are you saying that we're less effective at um, identifying and diagnosing bipolar than we've ever been? Is that all? all yeah, it's, I mean, it was a small change, but yeah, it was not, you know, it wasn't getting any better. If anything, it was What's getting a little bit worse. Because you would think that it was, because it's yeah. quite noticeable, isn't it? Because someone's personality is quite different. Their behaviour is quite different. So what, how is it that people are missing that that's what they're seeing? So, I mean, we found that it was even years from first contact with mental health services you know and i think it's worth saying you know you you don't get a bipolar diagnosis from one kind of manic episode you know you have to have at least a couple because there are some people you know similar to psychosis who can have a episode of mania and then that's it mm -hmm. um so it you know you do need to kind of a couple of mood episodes to meet it mm -hmm. i think it's missed often i think the the mania is missed and a lot of people got picked up uh you know they get diagnosed with you know unipolar depression you know, just depression you know what i mean De um mm. depression without the mania there was a study we did looking at um iat and recently and we found that potentially 30 percent of people largely undiagnosed in iat uh, bipolar but um they're presenting for depression or anxiety mm. so i think it gets missed and there's a few reasons for that um a and well, I think we can come back to this to an extent. Sometimes people can enjoy the hypermania, you know, it, before it goes too far and causes problems. Yeah. So you don't tend to go and reach out for help when you're hypermanic. Mm -hmm. When it gets to the full mania and someone might, you might end up being sectioned or, in, you know, police involvement or whatever it is, it might be forced upon you, but you're, you're unlikely to go for it. You'll go for help for depression, right? Yeah. Um, um, the depression episodes go on, you know, quite long. If you if you look at the lifespan of someone with bipolar disorder, you know, they spend like that much time depressed, that much time okay, and then like that much time, mm. um, and very little, comparatively speaking, time actually hypermanic or manic. Mm. So it's easy to get missed because professionals don't see it. If you're only seeing a psychiatrist every six months, they and won't see sense, you when you're in that state. The because they feel too good. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so i i do think it gets missed um it might get put down to other things by friends family colleagues oh it's it's adolescent angst it's it's drugs for example you know if you someone on speed cocaine ecstasy someone on mania look very much the same so it can get put down to other things you know um but i, I think there's there's a, that problem is that people don't reach out for help you know you go to the gp saying i'm depressed mm but maybe not for the mania. And I think that's why we're trying to, with Bipolar UK, get people to ask about those highs, even if 
someone who's presenting with depression, especially if they've, you know, presenting with what's often called treatment resistant depression, where they've tried CBT, they've tried antidepressants, it's still not working. Um, because, I mean, there's just, as a psychologist, I think what might be going on, there's this concept of like mood dependent memory. Right? So, mm. you know, we, we all have moods, but um, our memory is quite specific. So you'll be able to remember this conversation better when you're sitting in the room you're in, Nikki, you know, yeah. right? Because context dependent Give memory. Mm. Yeah, context dependent memory, you know. It's the same with your mood, you know. So if you remember something in a good mood, you're going to be more likely to remember it in a good mood. So if you go to the GP and you're depressed and they say, have you felt like this before? You think back to all the times I felt depressed and all the times I felt mm. bad. And you, you kind of just don't really register mm. the times that you felt manic, you know. Mm. So that's why you need to ask about it in a particular not, way. Yeah, particularly mm. if you're not associating that as a symptom. Yeah, exactly. People to ask see you, it as separate. And you're like, oh, I'll look for problems. You don't yeah. look for the time when you felt on top of the world that everything was coming together for you. Well, that's it. People, you know, yeah, and it goes too far and it causes problems. But <laughs> to an extent, people, at least at an early stage, they, they don't realise often that they're unwell. They, I'm not unwell. I feel great. You know, I... The night before I went into a psychiatric ward, I wasn't unwell. I had an amazing business idea that was going to change people's lives and make me rich. You know, I wasn't unwell. Mm. So, yeah, it, that's why you need to kind of, I think we need to ask for it. So I do think it gets um, missed and kind of put down to kind of depression alone. Mm. Um, I think as well, it becomes helpful for us to kind of dig into the sort of psychological mechanisms of bipolar, because considering it's one of the, the big serious ones mm. if, if any of them are not serious well, I don't think it's true of diagnosis and um, I think people know much less about it than they do about depression and psychosis so I wonder if we could just focus on sort of psychological mechanisms what's going on yeah sure so no I agree I think I mean I think I, uh, there's less research out there about the psychology of bipolar disorder compared to psychosis you know I, again that's one of the stuff we've been doing with bipolar UK is kind of little bit of the kind of poor cousin when it comes to psychosis we're not saying psychosis is getting too much funding or anything no. like that we're, we're saying that actually sometimes the bipolar research does not neglected you know mm. um there's not as much research out there and there's not enough people researching it mm. yeah i agree i think uh, i think maybe health professionals but certainly service users can have quite a medicalized view of it and i'm not i'm not at all disputing i find the diagnosis helpful I completely, you know, I think, yeah, the brain genetics, yeah, I completely, I'm not disputing any of that and the role of medication. Mm. And there is a really important psychological part, which is neglected. So I, I do think people mm. can sort of internalize this narrative that I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who have had years, even decades with bipolar, mm. and they have no idea about the psychology of it and what they can do to stay well. They really just think all I have to do is take my medication. And it's mm. not that simple. Mm. So one of the key findings and something I'm kind of actively researching is um, very high standards. I mean, this is similar to kind of people with depression. So what, what we call dysfunctional assumptions. So this is things like um, if I work hard enough, I should be able to achieve anything. Um, I've got to be outstanding in one major respect. So mm. the goal focused high standards perfectionism is a really um, common trait. Mm. And linked to that quite low self-compassion quite hard on yourself you know so quite perfectionist high standards mm. um is part of that and often the 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 mania is 
it, part of that it's, it's goal focused it's often trying to achieve something trying to achieve a goal trying to you know better your life create a business um and you know, there is a bit of it research that you know there is potentially a bit of overlap between kind of risk for bipolar disorder and actually maybe successful leadership successful mm. entrepreneurism actually mm. um so big ideas mm. and maybe there are some people who have them risk it all and they they pull it off but then they were on a much bigger group of people who mm. like the impulse spending you know risk it all mm. and it really backfires mm. really mm. makes the life hard so um yeah, these kind of big ideas, you know, they've even done studies showing that people with bipolar disorder tend to have quite high ambitions for like fame and fortune. And um, mm. that predicts mania, you know, like over the course of a year. Mm. And well, it's something it's worth... you see with celebrities, isn't it? It's one of the ones you see most obviously, I think, between. Yeah. And again, yeah. It's the difference between someone who's widely recognized as a genius and somebody who's recognized as not very well whether everyone else agrees with you or whether it works <laughs> yeah whether, whether so you put it off symphony. absolutely yeah. yeah i mean there is a a stereotype about people with bipolar sort of kind of being tortured geniuses and if you look mm. through history there's there's people yeah. su uh, such as um uh, alexander hamilton you know the u.s founding father and florence nightingale you know who potentially look back and then try and claim people for certain diagnosis it yeah yeah isn't it yeah it is but you know there is this mm. yeah potentially unhelpful stereotype of like tortured creative geniuses um but there's a bit there is a bit of truth to this idea you know there's tend to score quite highly on measures of like inspiration and creativity a lot of people report when they're manic they feel very creative yeah you know that actually colors seem like brighter and actually, if you look in the brain scan, the kind of back of your brain, you know, that takes in the visual information is on fire. So that makes sense. I mean, the most shocking statistic, I can't believe this, but according to one study, if you've got an artistic degree, you're 62% more likely to be hospitalized for bipolar than the general population. So that, that is not causation, everybody calm down. If it, you're background it, in arts. It's not, no, it's not. And it, but it's the yeah. the kind of the creativity and the big ideas yeah, is, is, is very much it. part of it. Yeah. And I think all of these experiences, you know, like a lot of mental health problems, some of those kind of hypermanic traits are, you know, quite evenly spread in the population, you know, mm -hmm. and when it gets to a certain point and it causes problems, we call it bipolar. But mm -hmm. yeah. they're all on the traits. So, you know, if you describe yourself when you're really happy and you get really good news, you might go out take risks spend more money yeah. not sleep you know delighted. yeah yeah so you multiply that yeah i think the other thing is that um life events have a really big impact uh, and they do want you know on all of us of course and you know we all know as mental health professionals working out people's triggers is just a really important part of you know mm. formulating and staying well but there does seem to be something where actually these these life events are particularly kind of problematic you know if you think about stress vulnerability mm. and people with bipolar just just seem to be like especially hard hit by life events and mm. I think the key thing here is we're not just talking about negative life events we're talking about good life events as well that's the rubbish mm. thing mm. so yes you know not surprisingly losing a job financial problems mm. divorce etc that that mm. predicts depression but positive life events as well you know um 
I mean, sleep's a big trigger. That's, the, again, bipolar case over. That was the biggest one. But we also found lots of people report triggers such as like getting promotion, going on holiday, getting married. Mm. Um, so they can be... Causing change or disruption to your everyday patterns. What's, what's it with the Well, issue? I think, I mean, part of it is it changes your usual routines. It changes your sleep pattern. Um, but I think, you know, that these kind of high standards is part of it as well. So I can think from my own experiences and, you know, my, my bipolar disorder and my career as an academic are like completely intertwined. I get, I got, I got hypermanic about my dissertation about hypermania when I was an undergrad. Um, but if, you know, I can think where I've had good news about research, like a grant or a paper published. And then because of my like need to achieve, need to do more, it doesn't stop there. And it's like, right, I've got to keep this going. What can I do next? Big idea, you know, I'm on a roll kind of thing. So actually you start to get mm. a really busy mind and lots of big ideas from good news, you know? Mm. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of influences on this. I think the, uh, you know, some of the messages people get from, you know, whoever it is maybe about their families about success and maybe they, they want to, you know, do well, et cetera. Mm. But there's also we know there's 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 a high prevalence of um, abuse in mm. you know, childhood trauma, you know, yeah. high levels of trauma in bipolar disorder, and especially emotional abuse in childhood. So, if you can imagine a child who was very criticised for not doing well, and they internalise this, I have to achieve, I have to do really well, mm. and then actually it goes too far, and they can make themselves unwell. You know, and mm. that real kind of high standards goal focused is just very key because mm. if you're relentlessly goal focused you know mm. if you meet your standards you just up the bar right just higher higher and if you don't meet them you crash into depression mm. i'm useless i'm rubbish you know so that real kind of black and white mm. um, defining yourself by your your what you've achieved is is really quite important you know and, and self-esteem is part of that as well the self-esteem is kind of quite variable you know crashes down when you're depressed and then it can get very grandiose when you're manic mm. yeah you can see some real issues can't you if people are struggling to get their 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 issue recognized mm. on top of that I see another layer of isolation as well so you've got like maybe childhood uncertainty leading to sort of like this sort of really harsh inner critic then you've yep. got maybe people not pinpointing what the issue is um, and also one of the things that's really standing up what you're saying it seems to be that a lot of self-knowledge is needed for somebody mm. mood shifts and that's really difficult it's difficult to feel what the sea's doing when you're in the boat isn't it it's easy to look from the shore and think oh yeah. the tide's coming in but when you're actually in the boat it's really different to understand yeah. whether you're getting uh, higher in your mood or whether you're actually starting to crash and yeah and I think one of the things what I can remember working with people who, who really struggled knowing that a change was coming so even when things were good that worry that maybe tomorrow or was it the next day or was it the next month that things won't be good and yeah it's a, I think that's where a lot of the anxiety comes from is that uncertainty mm. and I, I certainly mm. I mean I felt I had years feeling like you know mm. you know that's what was the story the sword of Damocles hanging over your head it felt like that like mm. you know at what point am I going to have a manic episode so bad because I haven't been in hospital since I was 18 I am fortunate yeah. mm. um you know a lot of people with bipolar aren't as fortunate as me like that um but it felt like it's going to, you know, fall and I'm going to have a career destroying manic episode and until I had therapy. And now I do feel like that has gone. So, yeah, absolutely understanding your warning signs. Again, I think if people 
internalize this narrative that it's it's purely about medication medication is incredibly important of course but if they think that's the only thing they can do well it's very disempowering and it's like you know it's like i've you know i've got this disease and i can't do anything about it but actually there is you know trying to reduce your activity if you're starting to get manic you know trying to that's really important being aware of your triggers being aware of your early warning signs um even as simple as and this you know it's simple from where i'm sitting as a psychologist but it's a revelation to a lot of people if your mood's starting to go up try to reduce your goal focus try to prioritize try to reduce stimulation if your mood's going down try to make sure you stay in touch with people don't shut yourself away and it's all about getting that balance right you know not going from one kind of extreme to the other um so yeah I, and we know that the, the evidence for therapy is really it's really good in terms of preventing relapse mm. and reducing the need for hospitalization yeah can we talk a little bit more about that because obviously yeah sure we're not we're not sort of pill shamers here from like to each their own very much as that that's very much our mantra um because everyone's experience is so different it's not for anyone to tell anybody else how to how to um, experience or survive or thrive with this with yeah. conditions but obviously you know medication is a bit of a blunt tool sometimes um and sometimes i think it can feel like that's that's all that's being offered so i wonder if we could perhaps talk a little bit about maybe the evidence base for therapies yeah absolutely so there is you know really quite strong evidence in terms of it improving quality of life it reducing the risk of relapse so i mean cbt cognitive behavior therapy but also kind of just psychoeducation group-based psychoeducation and family therapy is really effective as well family focused work trying to help the family with you know positive communication and helping understand the kind of relapse prevention so you know reducing risk of relapse reducing acute symptoms of kind of depression and mm. um and mania as well you know so it, it's we're talking about very effective outcomes from you know mm. a group i used to run which was like about 10 people with bipolar disorder in a group so mm. it was like 12 sessions for a couple of hours mm. um you know, we had really good outcomes there and people reporting they feel like i've got a much better sense of living well with it you know so that's mm. what it is about is keeping yourself well living well mm. kind of having a good quality of life even if you've you know mm. got this and actually you said it, i said about you know being offered medication mm. i suspect everyone with bipolar disorder has been offered medication at some point mm. um but it's disappointing how much people are getting off with therapy it's not good enough uh, mm. the nice guidelines are really clear right yeah. they say yeah. that actually in primary care so if people under like a gp mm. psychological therapies should be the main treatment yeah and in secondary care, they should be as important as medication. Yeah. Okay. That's the guidelines. Yeah. Unfortunately, again, the reality, you know, from what we've done with Bipolar UK is that it's not often the case. So we found, let me just check the stats here so I get my numbers right. So we found that. Spot the researcher. <laughs> I know. If you were straight up, I don't want to get my numbers. <laughs> I know. Well, it's a report I wrote, so I don't want to misquote myself. That would be. <laughs> so we found that. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Um, so seventy-six percent. This is in the UK. Yeah. This is you know, over a thousand people. Seventy-six <laughs> percent have been offered therapy at some point in their lives. 
Mm -hmm. 69% have been offered it um, on the NHS. And we, we took a quite a broad definition of therapy here, you know, counselling, yeah. psychotherapy, group-based, mindfulness groups, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm, um, so yeah, 69%, which, you know, I guess that maybe that sounds like it's not too bad, but everybody should be offered it really, you know, mm. everybody should be offered it. And this group-based therapy, which, you know, by some accounts is even more effective than CBT. And from an NHS perspective, it's very cost-effective. Mm. Uh, only one in five had ever been offered that. So, yeah, I, I'm just thinking about the 29% who have never been offered therapy. You know, I'm just, I'll read you one more quote from my report. I have never been offered psychological therapies despite numerous episodes of severe symptoms leading mm. to inpatient admissions. It seems my episodes are only ever managed at crisis point with no follow-up mm. until a further episode. I mean, most shockingly, we so a quarter had specifically been told you can't get therapy on the NHS for bipolar. A quarter at some point. And half have had to pay for their own therapy at some point. Mm. And that's just not okay. Is it like so? This is in the nice guidelines, you know. Yeah. It just is a bit of a postcode lottery. It's not. Mm. It's really inconsistent. It depends where you are. I'm mm. um, just looking at some of the the comments, things like that. So, Lovelace, hello, Lovelace, um, saying fam uh, family being there for you really helps, and a bit of everything is what's most helpful, which is very true of all things. So, well done. Yes. <laughs> I think we're, we're we're all aware as well that not not all. Um, referrals for therapy are equal so sometimes you'll come across older adults who are not um referred on for talking therapy for depression it's like yeah. people are sad it's like no no, no it's not that yeah, exactly yeah like, no yeah. i mean it's one thing isn't it, if someone's having memory issues that's quite different but for, for people who have a straight up depression there is a recognized pathway that's not different and i think mm. what you're describing maybe there might be some people who are less likely to be referred so could you talk a little bit about that because then it's been recently. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the reasons, like I said before, that people with bipolar, I think, do get a raw deal is that uh, they can be really stable, mm. you know, for months or years. So, I, and this was the pattern we found with bipolar UK for broader support is that often it is just kind of managed as an inpatient and then mm. discharge. And I have had numerous conversations with people over the years, you know, where people go, wow, they're okay now. Well, I can't do therapy with them now. They're stable. And yeah. it's like, that's the best time to do therapy often yeah. is when they're stable because it's, yeah. it's you know, relapse prevention. Is such, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, well, relapse prevention is such a key part of it. So, you know, it's kind of like, do you think we should maybe do some therapy now to stop them getting an inpatient next year? You know, um, so I do think people are do suffer as a result because it is, mm. you know, other conditions like this. But I think the relapse nature of it it's it it's fairly specific to bipolar and i think that that actually yeah. goes in because it can take favor. a while to be on the, well, the list you might get better by yourself or, or reach a point of stability and yeah. then you've still got maybe two or three months and, and people are so keen to get the waiting list down the line you're fine now pop you off the list it's that exactly yeah yeah so i think that's part of it and there's also you know i'm doing some work on this actually and mm -hmm. you know i'm happy to say i have that i apt is yeah. you know historically IAPT would exclude people yeah. um, with bipolar disorder and a lot of people fall through the cracks between primary and secondary care you know I was initially told and a lot of people have this this is because I hadn't been under secondary mental health for a few years and yeah. I was kind of told well yeah you are bipolar 
and you need some medication, but you don't really meet the criteria for secondary care. Mm. But I apt won't touch you because you're bipolar, so you're going to have to pay for it yourself. Mm. Eventually, I managed to get some therapy, which was amazing. Um, yeah. But I think falling through the cracks. And so I'm trying to survey at the moment, actually, about, you know, again, what mm. IAP services do do it. And, mm. you know, I'm, I'm happy to I've trained one IAP service just last month who wants mm. to do more for bipolar because they feel like they're getting a broad deal from secondary mm. care. So that's really positive. Mm. Like I said, we published this paper. They're actually a lot of yeah. people in IAP are probably undiagnosed bipolar mm. and they do equally well from your standard CBT. Mm. Right. So I, I didn't know that. So I bet you loads of people don't. Yeah, yeah. But I think, in, I mean, I don't know if there's um, gender differences. and We haven't looked into that yet. I'd be interested. We do know that there was actually the male participants in our survey tended to have longer to get that diagnosis. Mm. But we do, I mean, there was a study in looking at a big chunk of South London mm. uh, a couple of years ago, and mm. they found that black service users were less likely to be offered CBT for bipolar disorder and psychosis, you know, yeah, which absolutely. just makes my blood boil, you know. Yeah, um, and it's so important to keep an eye out for it as well. Because yeah. you know, if, you're, if you're seeing somebody meet the criteria, then you need to, get, you need to advocate and you need to call it yeah. out and say, what's the rationale that this is not happening? And absolutely. It, and, absolutely yeah. and as soon as you start to pull it up, everyone's like, oh no, then fine, fine. Yeah. fine. And even if they're even if they're well, even if they've been living it with for ages. I work with people who've been living it for, with for decades and they still find it really helpful. And, you know, there's a recently published trial about bipolar mm-hmm. disorder in older adults, like a recovery-focused mm-hmm. approach, and that mm-hmm. showed promising results as well. So, yeah, I think people need to ask for it. And I think that in terms of who's being offered, again, I'm, I'm trying to just, we're trying to do a survey at the moment about people's experiences mm-hmm. um, of accessing therapy. Mm-hmm. But it... it it's it's just a bit of a postcode lottery. I mean, the, the thing is with, you know, with psychosis, because we have early intervention in psychosis mm-hmm. and there are targets and it's very mm-hmm. structured. So there's a lot more consistency depending on where you are in the country. Mm-hmm. With lots of other mental health problems, including bipolar disorder, it just varies where you are. Mm-hmm. There are a few, a handful of specialist bipolar services, mm-hmm. you know, so it's dedicated team for bipolar disorder or a dedicated team for psychosis and yeah. bipolar disorder and there's other parts of the country where you're in a generic cmht with everything else mm. uh, and i get people from you know because i do private practice i get people from all over the country saying even when they've been incredibly unwell i've been told i will never be offered therapy here can i pay you for it mm. you shouldn't have to pay me for it that's appalling you know can't imagine someone with diabetes being told if you were 20 miles down the road, you'd get insulin on the NHS. But because yeah. you're here, you know, yeah. and that's the problem is it is just a bit, there's the lack of consistency. And it's so strange, isn't it? Because you've got nice guidelines and you've got an evidence base. Yeah. And again, it's this, how many staff you happen to have dictating what you can ask for. So I guess, mm. you know, there's something to be said for staff speaking up about this and making sure the referrals are equal and fair and making sure that their services are actually understanding so when you ask for a referral for psychology or for, for talking therapy you're asking for not for someone to be, to be cured or something like that you're asking for somebody to be talked through about the trauma of being unwell how frightening and upsetting that must be yeah, yeah. And to look at building up a real um toolkit of coping strategies and ways to manage any potential problems in the future yeah. so if you if you're really clear about what you're trying to achieve you're much less likely to have your the services you're working for hoofed off the list 
yeah exactly and right offering thing. it to people not just when they're in crisis point you know yeah. Yeah. you should be it should be offered to everyone uh yeah so the relapse prevention is focused is key but yeah often it does need to go deeper and it needs to think about trauma and it needs to work on softening up you know that was part of the therapy i often do and part that was really helpful for me was understanding where those high standards come from and trying to soften them up you know thinking about values rather than goals it was truly life-changing for me just to wind down that incessant drive that was part of both the mania and the depression that's really important and i think another part of the work is often just working with because i think this is a little bit unique to bipolar disorder is part of the problem is that yeah people enjoy the mania to an extent you know not everyone but sometimes not everyone always but there are a significant portion of people who don't want to switch it off they know that it's going to go too far Mm. you know so I was running a relapse prevention group once no 10 people um who wants to stop getting depressed all of them put their hands up who wants to stop getting manic one person put their hands up and I was like this is a relapse prevention group like you know what you've signed up for but you know people want to risk their feeling like you know they've got sex drive they're feeling like they're confident you know my social anxiety's disappeared it's very alluring you know if you've been depressed for months and you've got no energy and no confidence and no sex drive and then you start mm. to get manic and that all comes back and then some it's very very tempted to go with it you know mm. even if you know it's only going to go so far so that's mm. often part of the work which is difficult but really important is trying to get people to realize you know there's a there's a model i use um by warren mansley who was in manchester now he's in mm. australia mm. um which is really helpful which is actually what turns that kind of early warning stage you know prodromal stage into a relapse is how you think about it and often with mania it's mm. actually i can be really productive i'm going to be really fun mm. you know my sex drive is back and then you go with it and you do all of these things like socializing and spending money and taking drugs that just bring your mood up and up and up so yeah, there is a really there is a window where you can intervene and people can realize i'm going up i'm going down i'm you know i'm on a slippery slope here it also depends that, what else yeah. is going on for you doesn't it because i mean you get this all the time like, why does anyone want to be in a mental health ward and it's like well if you are absolutely isolated cold you don't have enough food at home and you're lonely being around people even in a noisy chaotic environment is better and if mm. you are somebody who who really experiences real torture in terms of like self-doubt problems with esteem isolation and then all of a sudden you don't have to be that person even for five minutes it makes absolute yeah. sense doesn't it and then yeah. you hear all this stuff banging on about why don't they take their medication you're like well why do you think yeah you know some people yeah it, it is a well i mean it it, mm-hmm. it it i think people do say it does feel like a drug you know mm probably in terms of the brain it's acting very similarly mainly and you know stimulants it, it it's yeah it's very tempting to go with it even though if you know it's going to go too far because it's a holiday from yeah, yeah it's a holiday from your low self-esteem and your depression mm-hmm. and you know feel that feeling it, it it does feel amazing and that's kind of the problem so often part of the work is really trying to work that if we want to mm-hmm. stop someone getting that well again we need to get them to realize that it's very hard to switch it off people want to try and use the mania and switch it off but it, it doesn't work like that you know it just gets it's a risky game because it just it spins out of control mm. i've got a couple of questions i don't know which one you want first one's philosophical and one's personal 
Ooh. I think they both sound like nightmares. Which would you like? Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> hit me with a philosophical first. All right. Hello, Please, Chris. Yeah. Nice to see you today. Uh, a philosophical question. I think persons with bipolar and perhaps other mental health issues or mental illnesses uh, question their authenticity in that does the bipolar that relapses the symptoms make up the person or do the symptoms of the illness move the person away from their authentic self? Oh, yeah. Go. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> I know. Oh, that's a good one for a Wednesday evening. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is, it's a difficult one where the personality ends and where the mental health problem lies for bipolar disorder is difficult because, again, you know, they might be creative and bubbly and high energy mm. generally. So certainly, yeah, we wouldn't want to take that away, but it is about, I think it's about learning where where the line is. Yeah. And that's part of the relapse prevention work is like, you know, so like I, for example, have big ideas and, you know, like, you know, writing a book about bipolar at the moment. Um, but, and that, that, that's fine because that's a, that's a long-term thing that's been going on for mm. years <laughs> and still dragging on. If it was like, I've got to write a book now, mm. you know, that's different. So that's often a, a rule of thumb I will say to people, you know, so I think that, you know, if, if you've got a big idea, fine. If it has to be done right this very second, then maybe that's the man you're talking. So yeah, it, there is an overlap. I think that's part of the work, which can be hard, is trying to mm. work out: is this me? Is this starting to become unwell? Because it's mm. there's a, a lot of grey area there. Yeah. yeah, it's asking a lot for people to understand the nature of self, isn't it? I think, and particularly when yeah. your 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 core, your centre is shifting like a pendulum. Mm. Sometimes that, that's complicated. The thing I always I remember Rachel Perkins saying was um, staff having a tyranny of low expectations for people. And that's something I always really try and be really careful about, you know, because you're writing a book and you're an academic and people are like, oh yeah, that will probably happen. Like it will for, you know, academics, you know, people are like, oh yeah, if you were working in a supermarket, you might be equally capable of writing a book. But yeah, sometimes absolutely. when people yeah. hear somebody talking about their dreams or their hopes or expectations, like, mm, but you're mental. So no, well, yeah. and I find that really troubling as well. That idea about you, uh, we we can put restrictions mm. on people. It, it, it's hard to draw the line between what is a good idea and what is potentially, you know. Uh, mm. My wife's a useful barometer for that. <laughs> is this a good idea, or am I potentially? Uh, but I I do think the yeah the sleep on it rule. Mm. If it's still a good idea now, it'll still be a good idea next week. I think that's a really mm. important one, and that helps separate that. Is this a me being a little bit, you know, excitable, ambitious, or is mm. this mania? So that impulsivity, I think, is quite mm. a, quite a key one there. Yeah. Mm. And so with the personal ones, and you can pass on them. Um, they're not as bad as I've made them sound out, don't we? There, there's two of them, and they are roughly sort of asking, you know, how did you how did you get into being um, into psychology? but also there's sort of like a question about you know when did when did you understand that you had sort of ill health to deal with as well and how do those two things inform each other oh yeah oh they're they're completely overlapping like I can't Mm. as you've seen tonight it's very hard for me to talk from a you know the Mm. academic point to the clinician point and the personal point I can't really separate them because it's all you know one the same so uh yeah I mean I I sorry I had a manic episode when I was 18 and I, I was already interested in psychology and I was going to be doing psychology at university and I had this you know there was a long build-up to it and a lot of triggers in retrospect but it escalated quite quickly and I had this 
grandiose idea that I was going to set up this international business with, you know, 200 pounds and two weeks with no business experience. And that was totally doable. Yeah. And I was offering strangers on the street a job and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and so I was in hospital for a couple of weeks and then I kind of, you know, slowly recovered and went on a gap year and then went to university. I was doing psychology mm. anyway. So that certainly mm. piques my interest in mental health, but I was quite interested already just from people I knew who had been through struggles you know when I was mm. growing up mm. uh I definitely had an under this I'm one of those people who falls into the that category of missed you know not nine and a half years I was fortunate but I definitely had a undiagnosed <clears throat> kind of hypermanic manic episode when I was 16 mm. um, but it just wasn't picked up at the time it's put mm. down to teenage angst I guess to be mm. honest uh and then yeah so I did my degree and I had kind of a, a couple of relapses but um mm. I kind of started to get my work experience so I yeah it's interesting I I have actually done a whole nother interview about my career and how it overlaps mm -hmm. so I, I'll try and keep oh, the brief but... the link and we can we can forward out okay yeah, yeah we'll do yeah yeah there's there's an organization called um integrate which is specifically yeah, yeah. for the mental health and mental health professionals so I've done an interview for them yeah. uh yeah and then I I sort of yeah work experience after I graduated and did the doctorate but I kept it very mm. quiet when I was training I told on a need to know basis mm. um it was only when I was qualified a few years in that I became very mm. open about it mm. which was pretty liberating but it was very scary I remember spending yeah, a few yeah. months going have I just yeah. I just you know destroyed my career uh so it's really liberating that I can do this now but you know there are yeah I do still feel a little bit vulnerable sometimes and uh yeah, I remember I got told when I was a grad, you know, research assistant as an undergrad to someone like, oh, you know, you should keep that to yourself, you know. Mm. Some people do look down on mental health professionals with their own mental health, which is absurd because that's often the reason we go into it because of our experiences or someone we cared for or, right, you know, there's a reason we're interested in mental health. So, uh, and yeah, it's not essential, of course, it's not. Um, yeah. I do think it just helps with some of my research ideas come from my own experiences, like the impulse spending. And yeah. um, I don't always tell my clients, but it's never gone down badly. Mm. I have had one bipolar group suss me out. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, you really, really get it. Are you bipolar? And it was like, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so yeah, I'm. Mm -hmm. And actually, when I have been open about it to colleagues, mm. you know, you get lots of other people saying, oh, I've had my own stuff as well, but I felt like I couldn't talk about it. Mm. Why not? It's sad that we did it for such a long time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. we had like colleagues who stood shoulder to shoulder with us and with this idea that mental health is something that happens on the other side of the glass and everyone in here is fine. Yeah. Even just looking around, everyone here is not fine. Yeah, that us, <laughs> that us and them mentality yeah. is no, yeah. I mean, yeah, you've got to be careful because, you know, yeah. you it's have to be well you enough to look after what yeah. you have to look after self to look after the people you have yeah. to be well enough um i think it's generally helpful for me but i do have to be careful you know if i'm if i'm depressed and feeling quite hopeless it's very hard for me to work with someone who is also depressed and hopeless because they're like yeah. everything's awful and you're like yeah it completely <laughs> is you're right i'm not gonna help restructure <laughs> that thought for you i'm just gonna you know it's 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 because it's, it can be a little bit contagious you know so um but i just have to be aware of that and that's fine and um Absolutely. i've never had a bad reaction from service users who i have told yeah that's a good thing yeah. i think it depresses me that it might be staff but I, I think we 
tomorrow's problem yeah. isn't it throwing out stigma <laughs> right now let's finish this um uh, last couple of questions are um how how can i help what a lovely question so what can people do to help and and what, what are your plans in the near future to move this this conversation this understanding forward oh that's a lovely question uh i'm on twitter just at dr tom richardson very imaginative uh, if you do have bipolar disorder, I've got some surveys on there asking about your experiences and so, so one about experiences of trying to access therapy at the moment. Mm. I think um, Bipolar UK, I, I work with them. I'm on their kind of commission and their advisory panel. Mm. They're just doing amazing work and um, you know, they've got loads of resources on their website, but also keep an eye out because they, they're often looking for um Yeah, I think there's places you can volunteer, but they're also looking for people with um, bipolar disorder sometimes clinicians lived experience you know carers as well to complete their kind of research as yeah. well so they're really pushing it forward yeah mm. i've just clicked to the time realize we've been going for ages sorry everybody we need to think about how we're going to wrap up i'm also aware that i've totally ignored dave this week anything <laughs> <laughs> that you wanted to add dave what i've got to say nikit even though you have completely ignored me i don't mind uh, and also, <laughs> also i've been keeping myself very busy by tweeting lots of links uh, to the information that Tom has been sharing. So over on Twitter, you've got the links to things like the nice guidance that he's mentioned, uh, and also the interview that you did with Integrate uh, there. I've, I've put a link to that as well. So uh, anyone that wants the easy kind of links, uh, head over to MHTV on Twitter. Okay. Is there anything that you know you can you can leave people with, um, Tom, just for people to to really read or to know, know what's coming up, any work that's coming up for you next? Um, I mean, I think the the Bipolar UK report we did, which is just on their website, it's called the Commission Report, is makes for some good reading. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, I will give a uh, I'll give a plug actually to I've just written a foreword for um, Cara Lizette who. Um, has written a sort of workbook for living well with bipolar and that's going to be coming Brilliant. out quite soon yeah mm -hmm. so that that would be good it's called the I think it's called the bipolar workbook um, mm -hmm. I, I just had another positive note actually I, mm -hmm. you know I don't want to be all doom and gloom you know some positive nature is um, some yeah. positive movement is you know one of the reasons one of my roles at the University of Southampton is training um, psychologists nurses social workers to be CBT therapists and there's mm -hmm. the Department of Health actually has pumped a lot more funding into you know so it's um so for personality disorders for cbt for psychosis and for cbt for bipolar disorder so you know mm. department of health has noticed you know mm. um mm. i think there's a few iap services that are may i'm trying to work with that are maybe wanting to do more with bipolar which i think is a great mm -hmm. idea um and you know the number of clinical psychologists um has been increased as well over the last mm. couple of years mm. um and that's that bipolar is part of that not all uh, mm. so there is some kind of positive news mm. there Absolutely. So for anybody who wants to understand more, do have a look at our links. Um, and coming up next week, it's our Christmas special next week, isn't it? The end of end of term, everybody. And we're really lucky we've got students in next week. Um, so goodness knows what's going to happen. But fingers crossed, we all come back in the new year. So <laughs> it'll be Bryony and Tanisha. So if you do have any questions, queries, or you want to join in and talk about student life, please do. Um, and until then, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much to our guests um, and to Dave, obviously. Store and to you guys for watching. It's lovely to see you. Bye bye. Thank you.